Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. But as many as received him, to them, he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, Who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received grace for grace. Father, as your psalmist said, I pray you would open up our eyes. We may behold wondrous things out of your law today. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We finished with verse 12 last week, but I'm going to include it just for the sake of context. It says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We were told in verse 12 that it is only through belief in God by receiving his son that he grants anyone the right to become a child of God. We are now in verse 13 given a list of things that have no ability to make us children of God. Let's look at them separately. Who were born not of blood. What does that mean? Well, your grandfather may have been a stellar Christian. You may have 14 preachers in your family tree. But according to this verse, none of that makes a bit of difference because entrance into God's family is not passed on genetically. It has nothing to do with blood, which speaks of human descent. It's been said that God has no grandchildren, only children. The next thing is, nor of the will of the flesh. Nor does birth into God's family have anything to do with fleshly desire. Paul tells us in Romans that there is none who seeks God, no, not even one. And so the great physician's diagnosis of humanity is really pretty bleak. All are sinners without exception. When it comes to those who don't know Christ, or for that matter, us before we were saved, none of us truly ever sought the God of the Bible. Now, If I forget this divine diagnosis and start to think, hey, he's a pretty good person. I'm setting myself up for disappointment and disillusionment. Therefore, instead of being surprised when someone does something bad, maybe instead we should be amazed when someone does something good. Because the divine diagnosis is we are all depraved. Apart from God initiating the relationship, no one has ever sought Jehovah God. 
What about that guy in the Philippines, you ask, who flagellates his body and is hung on the cross every Easter? Sure, his theology might be a little bit off, but he's seeking God, right? No, he's not. Paul says that none seeks after God. What about the Tibetan monks who live their entire lives in simplicity, poverty, and celibacy? Surely, they're seeking God. No, they're not. The Bible says that none seeks after God. Then what's the God in the Philippines seeking then, you ask? Perhaps he's seeking alleviation from his guilt. Perhaps recognition from his peers. Perhaps exaltation of his soul. But he is not seeking God for God's sake. What about the monks in Tibet then? What are they seeking? Perhaps they're seeking peace. Perhaps some kind of transcendent emotional experience. Perhaps a higher consciousness, but they are not seeking God. The Bible says none seeks after God, no, not one. Every believer who has ever lived was was chosen solely on the basis of grace because of God's unmerited, undeserved, and unearned favor. If the Lord didn't call us, and the Holy Spirit draw us, and Jesus save us, none of us would have been saved. Now, the next phrase we'll look at is, nor of the will of man. This tells us that there is no man-made system or religion that will ever grant us access to salvation. The Latin word for religion is religare, and it means to link man to God. And there are many religions that claim to do this, But there is only one that God accepts. Why? Because the link between God and man is only found on an old rugged cross. So how does that happen? The last phrase of verse 13 tells us, But of God. God does it all. It's his sovereign work in the hearts of men that draws them to himself. Wait a minute. Didn't you say last week that it was God's desire that no one should perish? Why then doesn't he just do his sovereign work in the heart of every man and draw everyone to himself? I don't know. I do know we serve a righteous God. I do know the judge of all the earth will do the right thing. He's given every man the opportunity to choose him, and yet he has retained the right to choose whom he will. It's kind of like the Brooklyn Bridge that is sustained by a cable tension of seemingly opposing forces. That's how I view sovereignty and free will. They seem to pull in different directions, but it is that tension that allows people to cross over. But this is the sobering part for those who don't know God. I do know that Jesus said in John 6:37 that anyone who comes to him, he will never drive away. But the frightening thing to me is there seems to be a point in Scripture where it is possible for a person to harden their heart to the point that they simply cannot be saved. Now in John 12, uh, John quoted Isaiah the prophet from Isaiah 53, which reads this, Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now stay with me here. Jesus is picking up these words and applying them to his own ministry. 
Now, first he is talking about those who had the opportunity to see the light, but would not believe. Listen to how they are described in verse 37. It says, even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. But then it says in verse 39, for this reason they could not believe in him. In my Bible, I have underlined verses 37 and verses 39. Could not and would not believe. I have linked the two. So notice carefully what Jesus is saying. He is saying that there are some people who would not believe, and as a direct consequence of that, there came a time when they could not believe. Now this leads to one of the most interesting mysteries in the Christian faith. On the one hand, we have the idea of the free will of man, and on the other hand, we have the idea of the sovereign will of God. Now those who major on the free will of man says that it seems to suggest that man is free to do whatever he wants apart from God. And those who major on the sovereign will of God seem to suggest that man is not free to do anything. Everything has been predetermined. He is simply part of the sovereign will of God and is helpless to do anything about it. I believe both extremes are wrong. In that passage I just read, we are told they would not believe and then they could not believe. We have a great illustration here, I think, of the sovereign will of God and the free will of man operating in tandem. The free will of man is he had the opportunity to see the signs that Jesus performed, to hear the words that Jesus spoke, to be exposed to the truth and to see the light. He had total freedom to see and experience all these things and still to disbelieve it all. Jesus would put those people in the category of despite all the evidence presented to them, they simply would not believe. That is the free will of man. Well, the sovereign will of God comes in is he has sovereignly chosen to give man free will, but he has also sovereignly chosen that man will live with the consequences of his choices. And so if a man or woman goes on refusing to believe, or she goes on the category of would not, God has sovereignly decided that in the end, the would not can become a could not. Now, if you don't know Christ this morning, what I've just told you is the most serious thing you will ever hear in your entire life. Why? Listen to these next words Jesus quotes from the book of Isaiah. Speaking of God, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart so they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be, confer be converted so that he would heal them. Here is the solemn aspect of the gospel message. Christ has come as the light, but there are those who would not believe. They feel that they are exerting totally their free human will, and they are. But they're overlooking that by exerting their human will, God will in the end sovereignly say, enough is enough. I will now ensure that your eyes will not see and your heart will be hardened. That word translated hardened is literally calloused. There's a simple law that says if you go on banging your hand against the wall for karate, eventually you're going to develop calluses. Well, there's another simple law. If you go on closing your eyes to the truth, you will become blind. If you go on closing your heart to the truth, it will become calloused. 
The Christian says, not my will, but yours, O Lord. While the unbeliever says, God, in my life, not your will, but mine. Guess what? God will answer both requests. How do I know? God says so. And it is still the sovereign will of God. How can these two principles be compatible? I don't know. I do know that according to Romans 8.29, God's foreknowledge is a big factor in this. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, somehow free will of a man is also somehow part of the equation. But did God choose us because he knew we choose him? Or did we choose God because he had already chosen us? Once again, I don't know. I do know that if you think you can completely reconcile these things in your mind, your brain will short circuit. You'll get so frustrated that you'll beat your head against the wall and finally concur with J.B. Phillips who said, if God was small enough to figure out, he wouldn't be big enough to worship. All we can say is, Lord, I don't understand it all, but thank you for choosing me. Verse 14, please. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We are told that the eternal world, word, speaking of Jesus, actually became flesh. The fancy word for that is the incarnation. Now, the word incarnate comes from a root word, which, from the root word carne, which simply means flesh or meat. And so chili con carne simply means flesh or chili with flesh. <laughs> now, when you say it like that, it somehow, <laughs> it sounds less appetizing, doesn't it? And so what does God con carne mean? It means God with meat, God with flesh, God with skin on. Now, this is more than some kind of abstract theology that makes no difference in our lives. That very truth can change our lives and our eternity. How so? It shows us the extent of the love of God expressed through his son that he would lower himself to be a man. Last Wednesday night before Bible study, I was going to get the mail out there, but as I opened the lid, there were these dozens of ants that were everywhere inside the mailbox. Now, if I loved ants... Would I have been willing to become an ant and tell them they needed to find somewhere else to live? No, of course not. Who wants to be an ant? I don't have that kind of love for ants. So I just blasted them with a can of raid. <laughs> Given the chance, I obviously would be a very vengeful deity. But as silly as that illustration is, it's not even close to what Jesus did when he became one of us. That Greek word translated dwelt literally means tabernacled or encamped. Think of that. The word, the logos, the creator, the sustainer and reason for all things existing became flesh and tabernacled among the likes of us. It's at this point that John revisits the book of Exodus. This would remind the Jews of the tabernacle where God met with Israel before the temple was built. And the tabernacle was covered with badger skins, and it was plain on the outside, 
but the interior was adorned with gold, silver, fine embroidery, and precious stones. For the presence, the kabod, the substance, the glory of God was found on the inside of the tabernacle. The exact same thing is true of Jesus. So ordinary looking that he was, that Judas had to identify him to the Roman soldiers with a kiss. But the presence, the substance, the glory of God dwelt within him to such a degree that some of it actually leaked out on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now wherever Israel camped, the tabernacle was to be the center of Israel's camp. Now Jesus would be the center of God's people. Jesus, speaking of his crucifixion, said in John 12, 32, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto myself. The tabernacle was a huge tent filled with all kinds of symbols, and it served as a picture of the presence of God. And when Israel marched around the desert, they always had the tabernacle with them. But they had to pack it up, tear it down, and then rebuild it once again. And inside the tabernacle, there was a place called the Holy of Holies. Now, the Holy of Holies was home to the mercy seat, which was a wooden cabinet that held the Ten Commandments. And you see, people were never allowed just to stroll into the tabernacle and into the Holy of Holies. It was a holy place. Be very careful around the tabernacle, I bet the people would say. After all, it was very holy. Maybe they would say... Did you ever hear the story about Nadab and Abihu? Both men fell over dead because they ran into the tabernacle while they were drunk and offered strange fire. But now because of Jesus, we have something far superior to the tabernacle. Just as the kabod, the glory of God, was seen in the tabernacle, it was also seen in his son. Now in the Old Testament times, only the high priest would only enter once a year on Yom Kippur to offer the blood and sacrifices. But now, because of the atoning work on the cross, Jesus has rent the veil of the Holy of Holies, and we can behold his glory freely and intimately. Verse 14 says, we beheld his glory. That word beheld is where we get our English word theater from. What John was saying was to watch Jesus in his life and his ministry was to be like being at the movies, only it was real. It was even better than the Avengers. I've not seen it. (laughs) Because the movie of Christ's life had things like raising the dead, healing people, cleansing the temple, casting out demons, and speaking parables that still astound us today with how profound they are. And the verse ends by encapsulating the life of Christ with these words. He was full of grace and truth. The glory of God manifest in Christ was full of both grace and truth. John is almost certainly thinking of Exodus 34. Now the background is God is going to give Moses the Ten Commandments for the second time because Moses got mad and broke the first set because the church was driving him crazy. Which, as I've told you in the past, made him the only person who's ever broken all Ten Commandments at once. (coughs) You'll laugh later. But anyway, listen to Exodus 34, 6. 
Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Now, for their own safety in that chapter, back in verse 1, God told Moses to keep the people and even the livestock away from the mount where his presence would be. So therefore, in defining his name and nature, God could have said, I'm powerful and holy, awesome and almighty, when he is all those things. Instead, he said, I'm gracious and I show mercy and I abound in truth. Now, mercy is not getting what one deserves and grace is getting what we don't deserve. We all deserve eternal torment, but because God is merciful, we get a blessing. We all deserve hell, but because he is gracious, if you're a Christian, we're destined for heaven. He's slow to anger. And although I've given the Lord plenty of times to be exasperated with me, he doesn't get uptight. He's beyond patient. He's what the Bible calls long-suffering. It says the Lord is abounding in loving kindness and truth. The picture in the Hebrew text there is of an overflowing abundance of something. It would be like if the Pacific Ocean was pure water, taking a cup and trying to drink it dry. No matter how many times you dip that cup into the ocean, you're never going to empty it. That's the way God is with goodness and truth, forgiveness and mercy. So that Exodus passage tells us that God is both gracious, but he also abounds in truth or we could say God is full of grace and truth sometimes people portray the God of the Old Testament as hard and angry while Jesus is sweet and caring but they are the same this is why Jesus will tell Philip Philip if you have seen me you've seen the Father they are both full of grace and truth and I love that about Jesus The longer that I walk with him and the more that I learn about him, the more I am impressed with him because he is the perfect blending of grace and truth. Some people have a lot of truth but have little grace. They're hard to be around. Other people have a lot of grace but little truth. They're flaky to be around. But Jesus was full of both grace and truth. They were always in perfect harmony in his life. Jesus was neither hard nor was he flaky. He spoke the truth with great candor and honesty. Jesus would always speak with complete honesty. But in Luke 4.22, we're told that all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that fell from his lips. I pray that could be on our tombstone one day. Verse 15, please. John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, Who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received grace for grace. In verse 15, notice that John says Jesus came after him, but he was actually before him. Now you read that and think, Wait a minute, John, you were born like six months before Jesus. How can he have existed before you? This is a reference once again to the pre-existence of Christ, which we talked about in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word. Now we are told in verse 16 that of his fullness we have all received grace for grace. 
Now, your translation may say grace for grace or grace upon grace. It can be translated either way, and I think both are true. All you have to do is look around this room, and you know, okay, there's going to have to be a big run on grace with this group. Now, I think most of us, when we think of grace, we think of it in the sense of forgiveness almost exclusively, as in amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. And it is certainly that, but it's actually more than that. God gives us the grace that we need for forgiveness, but he also gives us grace in the form of power to live a different kind of life. To live a a life that is no longer characterized by sin, but by holiness instead. We are given grace for the purpose of living a life filled with grace. It's grace for grace. John Orberg writes, I have friends who have a daughter named Shauna. She was a strong-willed child. When she was about four years old, she would always try to ride her tricycle or she was not allowed to ride. Her mom became so frustrated one day, she went out in the front yard and said, all right, Shauna, here's the tree. Here's the edge of the driveway and here's the sidewalk. You may drive your tricycle in between the tree and the driveway, but you cannot take it beyond that. If you take it beyond these boundaries, I will spank you. I'm going back into the house now, but we have a big picture window. I will be watching you. If you ride beyond those boundaries, I will come out and there will be a spanking. Shauna was not intimidated. She stuck her little rear end out, pointed to it and said, well, you better spank me now because I got places to go. Well, that is funny and cute. That's also a picture of the human heart. This is a picture of the human condition. The human will has become corrupt. The human will has turned from God. Your heart is corrupt, and so is mine. But here's the problem. Because corruption is universal, because it affects every person like aging and deterioration, we have become used to it. We just get used to this world that we live in. Whether it's through injustice, violence, abuse, apathy, we get used to it because it's within all of us. The thing is, God never gets used to it. It never looks okay to to him. He never looks at our broken and corrupt world and says, that's okay. Grace doesn't do that. God's standard is the sinless purity of his very nature. He is not severe or unreasonable. The only condition to which creation can flourish are things like justice, love, and peace reign. As we finish up, I want to read a list of words, and I want you to see if any of these characterize you. No elbowing people, please. Prideful, judgmental, cold-hearted, apathetic towards the poor, greedy, envious, lustful, unfaithful, deceitful, promise breaker, cowardly, stubborn, self-centered, careless, complaining, and loveless. If even one of those struck home this morning, it should point us to our need of the grace of God. Now, grace would say that the spiritual moral sanity begins with this one recognition. God, I have neglected you and your ways. 
I have ignored you in your way of life. I have defied you in your ways. There's something wrong. There's something broken in me, and I can't fix it. God actually came to earth one day. Now, next week, we'll look at the verse that says, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus shows us how grace lives. And he went to the cross and he showed us how grace dies. Paul wrote, All men have fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace totally as a gift. By grace, we are declared to be forgiven. We are embraced and accepted freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Christ Jesus. And so grace would say to you today, you can have acceptance, forgiveness, and love you and the love you crave, no matter who you are, where you have been, or what you have done. And so stop trying to earn it. Stop trusting in your own works, your own accomplishments, and yourself. Humble yourself and receive God's grace like a gift, just as a child would. For it is truly amazing grace.